If you have an interest in horses and love learning more about horses, the horse industry, teaching, or even managing your own horse business, then you're in the right place. We would love you to join us on our mission, which is to improve the lives of horses around the world through the education of riders, handlers, and trainers. So get comfortable, listen in, and enjoy. Today's chat's been brought to you by International Horse College. International Horse College's motto is people safety and horse welfare, and you'll find this message throughout our chats. Registered training organisation number 31352. Now, coming into the new year now, we've got Jonna, Jonna McLean, a regular guest and has helped lots of people, I'm sure, training their horses over the time that he's been a regular guest. How are you today, Jonna? Yes, I'm very good, Glennis, and yourself? Good, good. Now, I'm thinking after a new year, you know, it's great to have a spell over Christmas, New Year, but we'd be bringing in this horse that we started last year. You know, the yep. horse is going well, he's going out, he's riding out and everything else. And we're talking yep. today about the 10 steps to teach the horse to start jumping. So we're not going to turn into a fantastic, you know, competition show jumper, but this is to start to get him going, the jumping, which I suppose is a pretty good thing to do if you're coming in and you go, right, I'm going to teach that horse to start jumping next year. Now it's next year. The horse is back in work. He's doing everything we asked of him last year. Is that about the right place to start the horse jumping? That's perfect, Glennis, because over the time frame in which we've given him a break, has given him the uh, opportunity to be able to consolidate the uh, the pathways, the neurological pathways, or the pathways that create predictable outcomes, um, a time to consolidate. So that's why it's perfect, because we've given him a break, and now we can come back in and have a look for any deficiencies that we might find in either in our groundwork or under saddle, and they won't take long to resolve. And then um, we can press on with a new task, and this is the new task. Something that you said there about predictable, if I'm thinking about, you know, some of the best jumping horses and some of the horses that I've had the most fun on, not just going out and winning competitions because that's great, but you want to go out and enjoy your riding. So if I think about a predictable horse and something else you said a while ago, something like a trained horse is a safe horse. Is that right? That's exactly right, Glennis, and I totally agree with you. I think some of the most fun horses I've had may not have been the most talented, but they've been the horses that have been the most reliable and the horses that are actually really good in the competition arena or really good in strange circumstances. They're just, you know, you pretty much pick up from where you went from. And if we look at um, our home environment, and let's pretend that our horse is working, let's say, to 80% of what we believe his capacity to be in the home environment, then the horses that aren't as predictable or aren't as well-trained don't tend to give us the translation of 80% from home to a new environment. They tend to give us about 60 or, or, or maybe even less. So, you know, these horses that you and I are talking about may not be the most talented horses, but the equation between our working environment and our um, going into a new environment or a competition environment, it nearly pretty much matches up. And they're always really pleasurable to deal with because there's not a whole lot of other stuff that we have to worry about because the context has changed. Okay, okay. So if I was thinking about my ideal jumping competition horse or my ideal horse even to ride, they're going to be quiet because they're well-trained. They're going to be relaxed because they enjoy their work and understand their work. They do need to be powerful because, you know, we're looking at a competition horse. They don't have to be the most powerful. They've got to have some power. 
which comes with training anyway, but they also need to be predictable. So if that's what we're working towards, I suppose the first step is to consolidate and make sure that everything's right on the flat. So we're talking about the line and tempo on the flat. They've got to be in self-carriage, and that's when we can begin jumping. Is that right? So how do we start that? Is that with poles? Yes, so we just start that over poles or, you know, I mean, if you don't have those facilities because you don't have an arena and you don't have the luxury of show jumps, it might just be logs on the ground out on on a ride, you know. So it's really just something simple that the horses, um, uh, it's really easy for them to read. It doesn't cause a high engagement of the flow response. Um, It pretty much um, will just step over it. And so what we're trying to do here is allow him to make mistakes. So all we're trying to do, and it sounds a little bit silly here because I know that we always say that we should set things up so, you know, horses don't get it wrong. We have to remember, though, that the one of the underlying features of all of us, including horses and dogs and, and all the animals that we train, is that there's a lot of power in actually getting it wrong because that's actually how we learn, and that's why it's called trial and error learning. When you when you make an error, you learn from it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I suppose the trick there is to learn without losing confidence. Yes, exactly. And we're not just talking about the horse either now, are we? Yeah, well, that's right. That's exactly right, yeah. I, and the other thing is too that this is – to teach the horse to start jumping. But for the listeners that are saying, oh, I don't want to jump, can we talk about next time, not next month, because, you know, this is sort of we've got a fair bit to do today. Can we talk about riders who are looking forward to doing something that's going to increase their confidence? Can we talk about that another time, maybe next time we have a chat? I think that's a really good idea, Glennis, because all the time that we've been talking about this, we've really been focused on training the horse. Yes. When really, at the end of the day, how well we go with that and how well we progress with that is usually limited by two factors, and that is the rider's capability and the rider's skill set. And they're really important features, so I think that would be a really good interview. Okay. Okay, good. All right, so we've got the horse going. They're going over the the pole, so... What do we do about spacing? Because you've just said if we're going over a bit of a log or something out on trail, when, at what stage do we start to look at spacing? What do they need to do first before we can look at putting more than just the odd log around the arena or odd log out trail riding? Okay. Let's let's not too, get too worried about the spacings at walk because mm-hmm. walk is fairly slow and each leg actually has its own independent um, footfall. So let's um, really get too worried about the spacings. That's when it becomes more critical is that when we start to make the spacings for trot. So if we make the spacings for trot about, you know, 1.2, 1.3 metres, but it depends on the size of your horse, the conformation of your horse, how willing he is to run, um, and also some of the other features that are important as well as how well does he stand self-carriage? Does he accelerate when he goes to the poles or he decreases his tempo? In which case, it will decrease his stride length, therefore he's more likely to get it wrong. So we can set these things up in an ideal world, but depending on the horse as to what we do. So mm-hmm. let's just start off saying um, I, I usually just take one long step plus one of my uh, feet, which is, you know, um, maybe... Uh, however long my feet are, <laughs> um, uh, I, I don't know how. I, I, you know, just a normal standard size foot. So yep. I do one long step plus one, and then I put the pole in front of that, and then I see the horse trot through, and I think he didn't step into the middle of those. He's finding that quite long. So mm-hmm. immediately I'll roll the pole one one pole with in to make it easy, so he can step in the middle. 
Okay. So what I'm training a horse to do here is to be able to perceive where he should put his feet. And the biggest disturbance of placement of feet is usually carriage. If his carriage is a high, short neck, mm-hmm. he will get it wrong so many more times than a horse that is reaching and starting to lower his pole and looking where he's keeping his feet and keeping his head still. Okay. Okay. So that's what we're really looking for is that the horse starts to lower the head and the neck through yep. the poles. Yep. Yep. Seeking the relaxation profile of the horse before we actually do anything. So he can start to read where he's putting his feet. You know, as you and I have talked before, a horse has a high flight response when we're leading him onto a horse slope. When his head and neck is high, he's probably yes. going to jump onto the tail right, or jump off the bank or whatever he does. But horses that actually lower their pole actually land and take off mm-hmm. um, in a really, really sensible fashion. Yep, 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 okay. So say, you know, just going back to the poles, if we've got the poles and we've got, say, four, okay, so yep. at what stage do – what do we do after we've got, say, four trot poles, the horse is going around, they're trotting, they're stepping into the middle, you know, between the poles, what can we introduce yep. after that or, or how do we progress that? Well, I was actually going to take that back a step and say, and I see this a lot with thoroughbred horses, because they are inclined to run, Mm -hmm. I think we need to talk about what happens when we put four poles out there, and some people have done this, and I certainly have done it, and and it's not always been a good outcome. You put four poles out there, and the horse completely trashes the whole lot. He steps on every single pole. So then what I do is I go to double spacing. So I go to 2.6 metres. So in Mm -hmm. other words, the horse takes... um, two strides between each pole, that spreads it all out so he doesn't feel so confined, he doesn't feel as trapped. Therefore, we don't disrupt the profile. Therefore, we don't disrupt any of the qualities of our work, our line or our tempo. And he can start to read and start to see that it's actually the tempo and the line in self-carriage that enables him to get through this. And all he has to do is minute adjustments. And that's going to be key later on when we're cantering to fences because it's not just about the rider adjusting the horse. It's not about that. Mm -hmm. It's actually about the horse perceiving where he can put his legs. And this is where it begins. So then we have two brains on the job. We have the rider there saying, yep, no, all is good. I need to make a small adjustment. Or the horse saying, yep, I can see where I'm going here. I need to make a small adjustment. I need to take a shorter step here. Mm. So it's not just about the rider, um, can I say, um, adjusting the horse. It's actually about letting the horse learn how to do this as well. And spreading them out, you know, doubling the distance, it gives the horse, I suppose, a little bit longer time to think before he's thinking, oh, there's over one, I could do another one, I could do another one. They've got exactly. that, that slower response time. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. There's not so much going through their brains all at once. It's not so condensed. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So what we're looking for then is looking for the line to be easy to manage, the tempo of the walk yep. and the trot is simple to maintain, and he's starting yep. to lower his head and neck through the poles, um, whatever you put up there for him, because it's the quality. It's not just going over the poles. It's the quality of the pace as he goes over as well. And we're looking for relaxation to be achieved with the long neck yep. and, I suppose, repeatable on both reins. That's right. Mm-hmm. And, and I guess the only other thing that we need to add to that is to make sure that the degree of contact that we have through um, doing all those things that you just mentioned means that we will have an even contact all the way through on the approach and the during and the post um, doing the pole exercise. That contact won't change, okay. whereas a horse that is tense, that, that, that contact will change. So, you know, the, the, the contact 
um, between your hand and the horse's mouth is really your um, thermometer and to let you know how well or not things mm-hmm, are going. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, so I suppose that, you know, I'm thinking communication, but if it's like a thermometer, exactly. it, they're going to tell you it's going to go up and down, isn't it? You know, like like if it's too, too one way, too the other yeah. way, yeah. And that's exactly, exactly, and, and that's why I describe it, Glenn. So it's funny you should say that about communication because I call the light even contact. The rains aren't flapping. I'm on a connection, mm. but the rain is as light as I can possibly ride it. depends on the skill set of the rider. Yep. But you can keep the rains really, really light. I call that my internet. So a heavy rain, the internet's blocked out. No connection at all. Obviously, the internet's not going to work either. Sure. Yep, yep, yep. Okay. So, you know, we talked about the horse making mistakes, bit of trial and error learning, so long as he doesn't lose confidence, that's okay. Mm. He's working out exactly where he can put his feet or not put his feet. How many repetitions? You know, say the horse is going well and making, going through without a mistake, how many repetitions before we should change it? Look, in order to be solid, you really want to make sure that you can do, you know, between five or seven repetitions Straight away. So if you can okay. do five to seven in a row, he's really confident with that. Mm-hmm. But the horses that can do two and then um, get two wrong and then get another one right, they they, they mm. need more of this. This is yes. what we shouldn't be changing anything here because um, the horse is still experimenting where he can and can't put his feet, and that may be um, a rider issue. That could also be a training issue, but it can also be an environmental issue where he's actually just worried about the whole procedure. Yep. 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 Okay. Now, at what stage there, because we've, we've sort of talked a lot about the poles, at what stage do we introduce a cross rail or something just above the ground? So we can sneak this in as soon as you can do four or five poles in a row okay. at a normal spacing of, you know, a metre, metre 20, metre 30, depending on the size of the horse, as mm-hmm. I said, and stepping into the middle, you'll see that we're, um, if you video this with your horse, um, I would recommend people do this. You will see that he will make minute adjustments in a stride or two before to be able to accommodate his placement of his feet. Then okay. the horse is starting to adjust automatically the takeoff and the um, and the trajectory of his feet in order for them to land in the precise spot. It's at that point that we can then put a couple of wings up and say, okay, let's make a cross rail and we'll just lift the um, edge of those rails off the ground by, you know, maybe the diameter of the rail. It doesn't really matter. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What we're doing now is just saying, okay, the rails don't always be, uh, they're not always lying flat on the ground. Um, sometimes they've got air underneath them and sometimes the profile looks a little bit different. So we start to introduce that. Okay. So, you know, and away we go. And, and then from that point, then the horse has to perceive the most economical point. And the great thing about a cross rail, it helps centralise your line because the lowest point is in the middle. Sure. So it helps um, create your line um, in, in being more of a self-carriage state. That's the value of a cross rail. Mm-hmm. So we're trotting over the cross rails. Um, we don't want to change the height because it's just about the difference, you know, showing yep. the difference. We're really looking for him to just trot and step out easily over the rails, aren't we? Not to leap, not to jump, just trotting over because we want to make sure that he's not scared, that he's confident, and uh, if he just trots over a little cross rail, then we're happy with that. Well, that's right, Glennis, because mm. if we can see that he can trot to the cross rail and he actually steps it, yes. then there's there's no flight involved here. Flight isn't required yes. until we actually start getting beyond a certain height. Mm-hmm. So it's a thermometer to be able to tell how well does he react when the cross rail, let's say that the middle of the cross rail is 
maybe it's you know 15, 15 centimetres uh, off the ground. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the middle of the cross rail. Um, then if he has a reaction to that and all of a sudden he accelerates in and then he departs in canter, then he's still worried. Okay, yes, so we've got some work to do. But so I use the approach and the departure mm-hmm. tempos to be able to help me work out how well does the horse handle that task. So that's why it's really important because I really would like him to be able to go trot and step, not jump, and then land in trot if he can. And if he can do that, that horse is really loose. He, yeah. He's you know, he's, he's ready to go. So we're really looking at the confidence that they're getting, the quality that they're getting, yeah. rather than how high they can jump. Training a horse to jump high is not, not difficult mm-hmm. at all. I mean, you can train horses to do height really simply, and anybody that's actually free-lunged a horse can see how quickly they can accommodate height. Yes. So that's really, really simple. The hardest part is actually getting him to understand the question on the approach. Yep, yep. So say the horse is trotting over the single rail, can we introduce a series of jumps at that point? If they're going over well over a single, you know, even trot poles, a single cross rail, when do we introduce a series? But then when do we also change the visual impression of the jump and start yep. experimenting, you know, with different colour, texture, shape and everything. You know, we don't want to get too excited and just make the jumps bigger and wider, but just something a bit different. When can we do that? Is that now? Yes, yeah. and that's yep. right now. That when we okay. have those quarters that you and I talked about, we can do an entire course of trot. Yep. We can do planks, we can do cross rails, we can do little horizontal rails, and then we can find out what he reacts to. And, and a lot of horses... Of course, you know, planks are a little bit different. They're obviously uh, quite a different profile to a to a pole, so they're really important to introduce very early. So I like to create um, something that is more visually challenging than height, yep. um, and certainly I want to take into account there not just the not just the um, shape of the shape of the um, the um, the rail or the plank in this case, but also the um, the texture of it, so what it's made from, and also the colour and the shades that it is, because all those things have an effect. And I want to find out how reactive is my horse to these subtle changes, because if the reactions are fairly negligible and he just accommodates them, then I'm ready to start saying, okay, now let's start to jump a little wider now. Mm-hmm, and that's mm-hmm. when I introduced that. So once I can accommodate those things and we can do a little course, then I can say, okay, now let's put up an extra set of wings on uh, three or four of these fences and we can start to say, now the takeoff point and the highest point of the jump is not the same point. Okay, okay, all right then. Stop. I need to interrupt this chat for a hot-off-the-press notification. That is, that the latest version of the book, 101 Careers in the Horse Industry, is now available and the best news is that it's a free download. So if you work in the horse industry, if you have a plan to work in the horse industry and have a career in the horse industry, or if you know someone who plans to have a career in this fabulous industry, then this is an essential book for you to read now and then keep as a reference as you progress through your career. With over 100 jobs to choose from, you'll probably find at least one that you'd happily do without being paid. So simply go to internationalhorsecollege.com, scroll down to the bottom of the page and click on the 101 Careers in the Horse Industry button to receive your free career book. Imagine, 
Maybe one day you could be a guest on Horse Chats. Now, sort of thinking about a young horse, it's going well, it's trotting into the jumps. Now, if we introduce something that was a related line and just a comfortable distance from the yep. first one, does it matter that the That's horse right. then does a bit of canter in between? It's, I mean, what are we looking for there? We're looking for the relaxation in the canter? We're still trying to get the trot? Yeah, um, it's a good question because what we're really looking for, we have to be mindful of was the transition flighty? In other words, was the transition from trot to canter, um, did it create what I call a lot of uh, an increase in ground speed? Because yes. it shouldn't okay. create a huge difference in ground speed. I want the ground speed to stay relatively the same. Mm-hmm. And if the ground speed cha- and doesn't change a whole lot and the horse is cantering between two distances that are set out and that are comfortable for the horse, in other words, are what I would call an accommodating distance, then the horse won't feel threatened by that and won't need to use flight to escape it. He will just canter in, canter in, canter in, and then jump. And then if he chooses to, you can land and you should be able to just do a little steady and he should just sink straight back into a trot whenever you want. So the upward transition is the measurement and the downward transition is also another thermometer because the ease in which we go up should always be the same in the ease in which we go down. Okay, okay. So we're really preserving that relaxation and that's just the most important thing because we're going to – you can feel it, can't you? You know, if your horse speeds up. Yes, you can. Yeah. So whether yes, you're yes. whether you're a coach training jumping or you're a rider training the jumping, yeah, we're just yep. looking at just um, keeping that relaxation. That's the most important thing. We don't want the horse yep. to speed up before or after the no. fence. They've just got to relax into it. Right. Right. Exactly, and that's probably the important part here now, Glenis, where people that have eyes on the ground, so they can pick up the poles, but they can also video. You know, we can shoot off a bit of a video, and then we can look at it that night and say, okay, did I interfere with him on the way in, Mm. or did I try to adjust him on the way in, or did I interfere while he was airborne, because there's no point interfering while he's airborne, because there's nothing you can do about it, so it will only do damage. But we also want to see how subtle these changes were and whether those subtle uh, subtle changes were significant in from our perspective. Well, you know, every horse is different. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Now, if, we, if we're practising the canter, you know, just thinking that, that we're sort of doing that little bit of canter in between fences now, yep. what sort of speed should we have at the canter? Well, look, these are good questions because I really think that um, in the beginning when the poles are just cross rails or they're really low, it's not that critical because the relationship between tempo and power has not become critical yet. Okay. But when we start to when we start to jump, you know, I'm talking about now 60 centimetres or so. So mm-hmm. when we start jumping 50 and 60 and 70 and beyond, we have to start saying, okay, let's train the canter to a certain speed so the power in proportion to the tempo is relative. And what I'm really saying there in a technical way is saying if you travel at, let's say, 105 beats per minute, which is every time each leg, let's say the near four, will choose one leg, the near four hits the ground and he does 105 beats of those canter steps Every minute. Mm-hmm. So that means that you and I have a metronome on my phone so I can measure that and I keep an eye on that. Then I want 105 beats a minute in self-carriage. And then I just ride the horse into the jump at 105 beats a minute. 
Yeah, I was going to say that's an easy one to set up yourself, isn't it? You don't have to go and say work out 100 metres a minute or 200, 300 metres uh, a minute. It's just, okay, uh, I'll put on my, my stopwatch, my phone, and just count it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And and I've got an app on my phone called a metronome app. It's a yep. free download and mm-hmm. and then away you go and you just tap it every time the front leg hits the ground and then you measure it and just say, um, how fast do you think that is? And then I just say to the rider, do you think that was too fast or too slow? So I actually train them to memorize what 105 is. Okay. And then if they have trouble with that, then I just put it on a loudspeaker and of course my metronome um makes it bing every time every time um his leg should be hitting the ground and then all they have to do is work out whether the leg in fact did hit the ground or not. Okay. Well that's even easier. <laughs> so it's yes, counting, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Exactly. So so really if we've got a horse just cantering into single fences or, you know, whatever yep. you set up. It's a nice big wide open area, no sharp turns or yep. anything. So long as we can keep yep. the tempo at the rate, and the fences yep. shouldn't have any effect, should they? They just The horse is just cantering around, relaxed, just in a relaxed jumping exactly. state. Yeah, yeah. You said before about the power in proportion to the tempo, so the yep. tempo gets adjusted then, I presume, when the fences yep. get higher and wider. Yeah, yeah. That's exactly right. Now, what I suggest everybody does now is download this um, metronome app or whatever mm, um, mm. app they can get their hands on and then go and have a look at the World Cup show jumping and then have a look uh-huh. at their own show jumping yes. and then measure the two. And you'll see that the tempo, as the fences get higher, they go, you know, th- metre 30, metre 40, metre 50, metre 60, you'll see that the tempos don't actually get slower, they slightly increase. So mm. what it means is that there's a relationship between the amount of power the horse can deliver in order to get over the parallel bar, especially if you've got a slightly deeper spot or a slightly longer spot. But it means that then you haven't shut down the canter and devalued the power so he can't get over the fence. You've done the opposite. You've preserved it. Yep. That's a really good exercise for people to do. Yeah. So just just going back over some of this, you know, like, like we want the horse quiet, relaxed, powerful, predictable. That's the main thing. So we uh-huh. need to be thinking about the self-carriage and tempo and line. I mean, that was just what we started with, okay, because that's yep. the horse that we had last year before we put him out for a spell. We brought him back in and it's right, yep. okay. But just to do with making mistakes, if he gets it wrong, you repeat exactly the same line, same tempo, and the horse will stop making mistakes so long as they, they're still confident because that's just the learning phase that they're in. You know, we, no one gets it right all the time. You know, people are on the wrong diagonal. They can't rise to the trot. They have a lot of trouble with everything, and that's just part of your learning phase, isn't it? So it's the same as the horse. It's exactly the same as the horse, Clarence. And in mm-hmm. fact, I actually encourage everybody to make as many mistakes as they possibly can as early on as they can while the jumps are low. Get yes, it wrong. Yes. In other words, one of the things that I'll do is, and I talked before about the distance um, in trot, Mm-hmm. Um, between the poles and, you know, metre 20, metre 30 or whatever your horse accommodates because they're not always the same. Small, there are a lot smaller thoroughbreds around and big, tall, lanky ones that take a long stride. Um, is that when we start doing this, then I will start, once my horse is pretty confident with all these things, one of the things that I'll do is that I'll just put a whole heap of poles out on the ground and they won't have any uniformity to them at all. In fact, it's a bit like pick-up sticks. I do it like pick-up sticks. I just put a whole heap of poles out on the ground, yep. and then I'll say, okay, now I think I've got to swoop through and 
trot over this pole that is leaning on that pole, mm-hmm. and then I'll come around on a right-hand curve, and then I'll just pop over this one. What I'm doing there now is making sure that the horse can judge the distance when things aren't uniform, because not everything in life is uniform, and I need him to be able, and I've always done this, is that once he understands the question from a basic sense, then I can say, okay, what about if we start to make things a little uh, erratic or a little odd or not uniform? How do you go with that? Because, as we all know, you can go and walk, of course, and you can walk it out as many times as you like. But then when you go and ride it, it doesn't come up how you thought. So that means that the horse then has to be able to think on his feet. You've got to be able to think on your feet. And then we can start to say, okay, when things don't become uniform, have I trained that? Mm. Mm. Yes. Yes. Okay. I'm just thinking here because we're not training. We're not training the rider at this stage. We're just training the horse. So this is an experienced rider. The ability yeah, of the rider right. should be that they make no massive adjustments with the range. You know, it's just that communication like you talked about. We don't want anything to change before the jump because, yeah, yeah then we just want everything so the horse comes in confident, everything the same, they can work it out, and the rider just has to maintain the contact and the communication. Is that right? Exactly, and stay as, as perfectly still as they can. And what I say to everybody, all my students, know that the last three strides is what I call a rain-free zone. Mm-hmm. You're not allowed to use the rain. Yeah. I don't care yeah. what happens, but don't use the rain. Because never have I ever seen anybody that uses the rain massively, three strides after does it ever go better. It just it never does. So I'm okay for if you need to use a little bit of leg, that's fine because that's going to add to your power. But when you subtracted the power yeah. before the fence, that's actually putting the horse in a in a really unfair position. So then, okay, let's say, for example, we're riding our horse in and we don't do anything coming in and he massively accelerates. And then I'll just, as soon as he lands, I'll say, no, trot, do it again. Okay. And that's how I deal with it. Yeah. I do everything on the departure side because it's not safe to do it on the approach side. Yes, and it wouldn't make the horse confidence either. If he's coming into a jump, he's trying to work it out, and then you're interfering with him. Exactly. Mm. exactly. Mm. And the one thing that's interesting we talk about is because the one thing that riders' hands do to the reins and do to the horse's um, carriage is that when you apply the rein, the horse's head carriage always comes up. Therefore, his perception of distance from his eyes to the jump point changes. Well, that's not a fair question. We shouldn't be doing that. Okay, okay. So really what we want to do as a rider is just keep the line, keep the tempo, sit still, and just facilitate the jump by giving him whatever rein he needs so he can bascule over the jump. Is Is that a good summary? Absolutely. That's a good summary. And the only thing that I'd add to that is once we start jumping um, over, you know, fences that are maybe 40 centimetres or more, I would actually give them a little, just a little calf touch and say, yep, you're good to take off. Okay. So in other words, I'm going three, two, one, little calf squeeze because mm-hmm. I want everything to be on some sort of cue. Yep. But um, at this point in the takeoff point, I needed to be off the forward cue, not mm-hmm. off a restraining cue. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. Okay. Now I'm just thinking about the horse, the session, because obviously jumping is going to be a bit more physically exhausting than going out for a nice trail ride, you know, you've got more canter, more, and more mental breaks as well. Yeah. What can we do there? Is there like a set limit of walk breaks or we just do it when we feel? Is there like a, a bit of a rule there? Look, a basic rule is 
four or five in a row. He's done really well. Have a walk break. Okay. He's done well there. Yeah. So let's have a walk break for a couple of minutes and let's analyse, check a bit of gear, um, have a yak to the person on the ground, so think about what the next task could be. Would you mind putting this up? Let's put a back rail on that. Can we um, make the front rail on this? And that's the great thing about grids, and I didn't I haven't talked about grids in this at all, but one of the great things about, and, and, and it's at this stage we can do this, the great thing about grids is, is that every footfall is dictated by the height and the distance from one fence to another, so mm-hmm. the relationship from one fence to another. So that can give our horses a lot of confidence, but it can also start to really put a bit of pressure on our ability to be able to ride a multitude of fences, hold our position, not disrupt the horse, facilitate the horse, but also give the horse confidence that he can he can see this and he can jump over this. And there isn't a huge amount of effort involved. Once there's no flight involved, then the horse doesn't overjump it. He jumps it proportionally to the size of the heist. So it becomes really economical. And that from there, not only can it bascule, but we can start to say... I would really like it if you would um, pick up your front feet a little bit more so we can start to nearly shape the classic profile of a, of a classic show jumper by doing grids and stuff like that. So, mm-hmm. you know, that's an option as well once we have these qualities in our work um, that are really predictable. Okay. Now, I know that you talked earlier about the different types of jumps we can get, you know, different colours, we can put in some planks, we can put in different fill. But I think you also said, I'm just checking this, that we change the appearance of the fence before we change the height. So the horse can make mistakes yeah. when the jumps are low, but not when they're big. So they're, they're learning something that's still low, they can get over, they can have a good look at it and get confidence. Is that is that along the right lines? Absolutely. And it's my eventing background that has actually taught me this, is that the value in being able to jump low and scary is mm. far more valuable than ending up seeing a brand new fence that mm-hmm. is high and scary. Okay. And everybody would relate to them. Yeah. 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 Yep. Okay. So really we just need to do lots and lots of low fences, you know, just approaching in trot or whatever, just to get the horse confident to make sure that there's no tension there and yep. then we can worry that approaching in canter speeding up higher jumps, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And then things like in you know, in show jumping we want to be able to do Liverpools. We need to be able to do that. Yep. And Liverpools is something that we can introduce. Once those rails start going horizontal mm-hmm. and our horse is jumping a, a small parallel bar, we can do Liverpools. Okay. So we can start to put the Liverpools in these places. And the Liverpool might just be a tarpaulin and or it might be uh drums. It could be up you know, drums forty four plastic, forty four gallon drums um cut in half longitudinally. Um, with a bit of water in them or whatever it is. Um, but it means that the horses now see the question, understand the context, and have no problem with it. That's yep. all we're trying to do. Yep, yep, yep. So no problem, confidence. We just want to make the whole experience relaxing for the horses and the riders, but I'm sure you're going to talk about the riders next time. And um, the eyes on the ground, I suppose it's good because you talked about videos a couple of times, you know, just to have someone that can take the videos so you can watch. I just think we've got to this point and this horse that's only just started jumping because it would take going over a few lessons, I can see they're going to be what I want, quiet, relaxed, powerful, predictable. And, Glennis, if we if we do this in the way that you and I have described and the horse, um, you know, is working really well on the flat, everything that you and I have just talked about today, including some of the contextual changes such as the, the width of the jump and certainly the... The appearance of it, whether it be a water tray or whether it be a plank, 
all these things can, these things can be done in one session. They can be done in one work session, mm-hmm. and then come out and say, okay, in the second work session, now. Okay, let's go back over the basics. How much do you understand? Yes, kick, you got that right. Now let's go to the next level. And before, you know, 10 or 15 minutes into your, into your work process, you'll be back exactly where you were in the previous session, even if it was a week or two weeks ago, it won't matter. Okay, okay. John, everything is, you know, I've said all along, it's just logical, you do it step by step, and you're making predictable horses and predictable horses, well-trained horses, they're safe horses. So, you know, I just think I really enjoy these sessions with you. I'm looking forward to the next one, which is, and this is a good one for coaches as well, and it's going to be a good one for people who are not confident, but also for people that are, you know, coaches, because I think sometimes as a coach, particularly a competition coaches training riders, we tend to train the horse with not enough emphasis on the rider and we get to a stage where people, they're just not confident. So if they're not confident, they're not going to be safe. Absolutely, Gladys. Mm-hmm. And this is the coaching the world over. We're always going to come across these people and it is up to us as coaches to be able to professionally provide constructive help that is then duplicatable for when we're not there. And as I say to everybody, it's not about this lesson. It's actually about what goes through your head when I'm not here. Mm. That's why I'm actually asking you these questions or getting you to do these tasks. So it means that, you know, this is a really uh, – a, a, the, the next interview about, you know, confidence in the rider – for me, is a far more challenging interview than any of the things that I've actually talked to you about with the horses because there's so many potential variations of of, of human behaviour compared to horse behaviour. Mm-hmm. And um, I have a lot of friends that are, you know, in a uh, psychiatry world, so they're psychologists or, or, you know, they help people with um, certain things. And I talk to them extensively about these sorts of things just to make sure that the, the methods that I use in my approach you know, don't unnerve or change people's um, uh, change people's outcomes too much that makes their worlds worse. Because at the end of the day, aren't we all doing this because we're meant to enjoy it? Yeah, exactly, exactly. And everyone, just because some people want to go out and compete, you know, and win, and that's that's fine if that's what they want to do. Sometimes people just want to go out and enjoy their horse. Absolutely, Glennis, and, mm. and look, and I'm not saying that competition is overrated, but it's just one aspect. I mean, mm. for mm. me, competition, I've been there and, and um, in competition from a racing point of view and also from an eventing point of view, and look, it was great, and I'm really glad that I did those things. But it's far more interesting and far more mentally stimulating coaching people if you are humble enough to be able to ask the right questions, and that's probably what we need to do in the next interview. Perfect. John, I'm looking forward to catching up with you, but um, if people would like to catch up with you in the meantime, what's the best way to make contact? They can do that. Just go to horsechats.com, search for John, J-O-N-N-A, and you'll find, I think we're up to number 16 now, and there's been a few listeners' choices there as well. So if you'd like to listen to how we even got the horse to this level, you know, starting off as a, as a young foal and producing it all the way through, yeah in just this logical step-by-step process that John has without stressing the horse. But we've got to the point now we've got a jumping horse that's quiet, relaxed, powerful and predictable because of these training methods. So if you'd like to contact John and talk to him about it, I know he travels all over the world and does clinics all over the place. So if you do want to organise a clinic, don't just be, um, you know, put off by the fact that he's in Australia and, and in just one state. He's, he's not, he's everywhere. So what's the best way to contact you, John? 
There's a couple of ways. Um, the the first way is you can contact me directly by email, and I can put you onto my various clinic organisers in various states and um, and overseas. And so we can do that. And my email is johnamclean at gmail dot com. So j o double n a m c l e a n at gmail dot com. And the other one is uh, my Train to Win Facebook page. So you can put. Um, something on there and send a question in and when am I going to be where and ask a question or if you would like a hand and like to make a booking I can um, help you with that as well so either of those two ways is probably the most uh, proficient Okay and those contact details are at the bottom of each page on Horse Chat so um, I'm sure you'll be able to get hold of Jonna and uh, we'll catch up with you again next month. Jonna, looking forward to it, thank you I look forward to it, thanks Clarence Bye bye if you've enjoyed this chat, then please comment, rate and subscribe. If you'd like any changes or recommendations for guests, then please contact us through horsechats.com. And while you're online, have a look at the government accredited courses at internationalhorsecollege.com. Registered Training Organisation 31352. Remember that our comments and instructions are general in nature and do not take into consideration your individual horses, or your individual ability and circumstances. If you enjoyed this podcast, then please leave your comment below 